I think what's interesting about the movie Hitch, the comedic part of the story is that we have, he, the, he, people have to rely on an expert, right? Mm -hmm. To coach them to get out of their own way. And in some way, what we do as followers or as people who are seeking God is we rely on experts, pastors, preachers, scholars, politicians, celebrities to tell us what to believe and what to think believing that that is faith instead of, as we always say here on Salty Pastor, it's, yeah, you can't have somebody else's faith. You have to have your own faith. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Salty Pastor Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you learn and grow in your faith. We're not here to tell you how to live, but mm -hmm. we are here to challenge you, to encourage you, to tell you some jokes along the way, and develop your critical thinking skills so that you can take this journey yeah. of faith on your own. Yes. My name is Jesse Mayer. I'll be your host, and we cannot do the Salty Pastor Podcast without the Salty Pastor himself, Dr. Douglas Peak. Yes, go live your life. That's what this is all about, and I'm so glad to be here with you to help you do that. Because in the end, it's your faith, it's your life, and what God wants to do through you, that's what makes your life awesome. So it's so good to be here with you, doing the Salty Pastor, encouraging you to go out and live life and grow your faith. So we're in the middle of our summer series at the movies. Our goal is to see how movies and the stories that they tell reflect biblical principles yes. in the Bible that make life work, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this week, our movie is Hitch. Yes. This is a story about how difficult it is to find someone and fall in love. And it's a classic for every person who is single and trying to fall out in love. And I just feel like you're really calling me out, Pastor. So, <laughs> well, um, Zach, this was his favorite movie Zach's when he choice. was single. Oh, okay, yes, yeah, Zach perfect. loved this movie. When he was single and trying to figure out how to navigate relationships before he got married, Hitch, Hitch is one of his, his go-to. Oh, yeah. It's a great movie, though. It's a great I movie. will say the basic story of Hitch is there's this dating consultant or guru um, that helps men attract the the right women and fall in love, and unfortunately he finds it very difficult to follow his, <laughs> his own, own advice. advice, which is tale as old as time, right? Yes. But in the end, does end up falling in love as well. So how in the world? Pastor Doug <laughs> does, does a, a rom-com comedy reflect huh? <laughs> uh, biblical principles. I'm ready to see how you swing this one. Oh, well, it's not too hard because the whole movie is about this is how difficult it is to really fall in love, to find the right person, build a relationship and fall in love. And I believe that that is simply a horizontal representation of what it means to know God. Mm. It's really difficult for us to find God and to discover him and then have a deep personal relationship with God. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, who is a famous theologian, probably back in the 70s and 80s, he was a philosopher, okay. theologian, and he wrote a book. He said, the God who is there. And then he wrote a second book, follow-up. It says, he is there and he is not silent. And what was interesting is when I first read those books, the titles of those books struck me because I said, well, how do you know he's there? And he sure seems silent to me. Right. right. It is. It's a mystery. You know, so many times people just have said to me, well, I just believe in God. If he'd show up, throw some lightning bolts around and create a few earthquakes and fix a few problems. Right. Right. And then you real. And then when I respond to him, well, actually, 
uh, he's tried that before and it didn't work. And they go, when did he try that? And I say, read, read the, the Old Testament. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's time it, again and again and again. Yeah, I mean, the miracles just in the Exodus are just overwhelming. And they still complain and they yeah. still don't believe he's there. Yeah, manifestations of God. You know, it's just unbelievable. And I said, so he's tried that and, you know, it didn't work. And so the thing is, is that hitch, I think, is a reflection of the earthly struggle to find love and stay in love. And but the biblical principle is the difficulty that we have of finding God and finding our faith in God, falling in love with God and keeping it. Too. So I think it reflects that it's, it's okay. our, our need to connect with somebody else and fall in love. Why is it so important for us, right, to fall in love and connect with another person? Is it just the process of evolution saying you have to propagate your genes or is there something more? Is it a reflection of our deep spiritual need? Mm. Is it our, is it a reflection of uh, uh, our, our horizontal need is a reflection of our vertical need to be connected to God. People want to know God. People want to know Jesus and they need to be directly connected to him on a personal level. But however, just like finding the right person can be so difficult, the right person to love, the right person to fall in love with, to marry, to stay in love and stay married to is similar to how difficult sometimes it can be to falling in love with Jesus. So I think what's interesting about the movie Hitch, the comedic part of the story is that we have, he, the, he, people have to rely on an expert, right? Mm -hmm. To coach them to get out of their own way. And in some way, what we do as followers or as people who are seeking God is we rely on experts, pastors, preachers, scholars, politicians, celebrities to tell us what to believe and what to think believing that that is faith instead of, as we always say here on Salty Pastor, it's, yeah, you can't have somebody else's faith. You have to have your own faith. And so just like Hitch wants every single person to fall in love and have a great uh, life, a great romance, we want everybody to discover Jesus personally, right? Yep. And not, we don't want to tell them how to be in love. We want them to experience it for themselves. So in the movie, Kevin James tries to uh, attract a woman who is yes. a model. Yes. Um, and Hitch, uh, Eva Mendez, and Hitch coaches him on what to do and what not to do. But yes. Kevin James almost always does the opposite through this process. Yes, he, right? he doesn't do how he's coached. Absolutely. And it's frustrating for Hitch. Yes. And, and Will Smith um, plays that frustration very well. Very well, yes. Um, yes. And in the end, when Hitch speaks to the woman about Kevin's love for her, she realizes yeah. that Hitch didn't actually help at all. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she asked him, you know, they're sitting on a boat. Right? Yeah. And she's like, what? So what did you do? And he responds, like, I, I, I guess nothing yeah right and yeah. so it's like it was it was none of the stuff that hitch gave him that that made right. it happen it yes. was all him being his authentic self right yes yeah and so how does this relate to the meeting of god well i think that one of the pensions of uh human beings is that we love experts. Mm. We love authority. Even if they don't have authority yeah. or they're not actually an expert. Exactly. And so Christianity has become the most influential philosophy, belief system, and faith uh, for the way of doing life for multiple reasons. The first reason is this, is because it's just simply true. It's not only true from a revelatory or objective standpoint, you know, like the Bible tells us, this is who God is, this is who you are, and so forth. 
it's it's uh, an, an objective revelation or an objective truth is a truth that can be tested and challenged and therefore it can be proven to be false or true. There was actually a really fascinating thing that happened in the 19th century. Philosophy was taken over by atheists, you know, Bertrand Russell and all these guys, they were extremely popular. They said, well, the age of faith is dead and the age of reason is here. Um, of course that, turned out to be false. Mm. Uh, but what's interesting is there was a guy who was a professor at Harvard law and he is the guy that wrote the definitive book on evidence. What's good evidence. What's bad evidence. How do you present evidence in the court of law to this day? His book is what's taught at Harvard law on the efficacy of evidence. He was also a Christian. And he stood up publicly back, I think it was in the fifties. And he said, look, I will pay anybody $50,000, right? Here's a reward who can, in a court of law, prove that God doesn't exist. To this day, no one has been able to win that case mm. based on his uh, rules of evidentiary uh, law or, or evidences. It, it's a fascinating thing. That's very is that, interesting. Yeah, it, the, the truth of God can be tested and proven to be false or true, and it's never been able to be proven false. Now, that doesn't make it true. You also have to say, well, how do we prove it's true? And there's five really powerful truths. Uh, we don't have time to go into those today because I would love to, but we'd be here forever. Right. Um, the second, uh, it, it's also true, though, just not in that objective sense. It's also true in everyday experience meaning that it just works. It works at the most basic level of your heart. And that means a common person, a common man can understand it. I don't have to go to Harvard law and be a professor there to understand the efficacy of objective truth that God exists. I can just live my everyday life and simply by accepting that fact, my life is better. And it, it hits me at the most rudimentary Level. As a matter of fact, this truth is so powerful. It's interesting to me that some people that uh, are born with Down syndrome, other people that are born with mental challenges, people that uh, uh, are special needs people, it's fascinating to me that all of them believe in God. All of them have faith. Mm -hmm. And what's amazing to me, it seems to be those who claim to be the most intelligent are the ones who have rationally tried to talk themselves out of a belief in God. You know, I find that really fascinating. That is very interesting. So, so it works not only on an objective truth outside of us way, but also everyday life. When you treat your spouse as Jesus Christ tells you to treat your spouse, guess what? Things just get better. They just work. When you follow God's plan to meeting somebody and falling in love, guess what happens? You get through all of the toxic things that you picked up in your childhood and all the hindrances, and you start to experience something you never experienced before. And you're like, man, I wouldn't even have recognized it if I would have tried to do it my way. Mm. And so it just works. Okay. Now the common man can understand why it works. A common man can live according to its principles and experience great things in their life because of it. Their outcomes go up. Basically, this is why the gospel has transformed poor communities for thousands and thousands of years. The one of the best ways to transform a impoverished community is to bring Christianity to it. I have an article from an atheist who wrote the following article. Um, this is about 20 years ago, 25 years ago. He goes, as an avowed atheist, Africa needs Christianity. Mm -hmm. And he says, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in, uh, 
the tenets of the faith of Christianity, but as working for an NGO in Africa all these years, I've come to the conclusion that Africa desperately needs Christianity because I can see all of the African communities where Christianity came in and took root in its authentic form has totally transformed it. And all those communities that didn't are just in struggling, struggling with just bone breaking poverty. You know, uh, here, here's a great, uh, example, 120 years ago, 80 to 90% of Americans lived below the extreme poverty level. A lot of people don't know that about America, 80 to 90% of all Americans below the extreme poverty level. 120 years ago. Yeah. Just 120 years ago at the turn of the century, 1900, Mm. 120 years ago. But what's interesting is today their productivity. So this is just one generation, you know, like my grandparents, you know, were born. Um, one of my grandparents was born in 1898 and, um, his wife was born in 1902. Mm. So, you know, we're talking, we're not talking lots of generations here is that their productivity is off the charts. The wealth that they have created in just two generations has passed anyone's in the history of the world. America is not only the richest country in the world today, if you don't take into account our debt, uh, but that's not the common man's fault. Right. Um, That's the elitist's fault in Washington, D.C. But if you take into account Uh, they are not only the richest country in the world. Now they are the richest country. We are the richest country in the history of the world. Mm. And so that's really powerful. Another significant, uh, reason why, uh, is because it overcomes centralization. One of the reasons why Christianity is so influential is it overcomes centralization, meaning there is a temptation of human beings to centralize power and control. You always have a small group of people who want to centralize control. First, it was pharaohs, right? And then after the pharaohs, then it became kings and monarchs or Caesars. Then it became dictators. And today's version that we have in the Western world is called elites, the professional class. The people so highly educated, their IQs are so far beyond the common man that they know everything and always make better decisions than anybody else. Christianity has always overcome centralization. The only central authority, central figure in all of Christianity is Jesus and no one else. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he didn't pick a particular successor. Okay. He didn't say, Peter, you are now my successor. The Roman Catholic church did that. Mm. Okay. But Jesus didn't do that is what Jesus did is he commissioned what all of his followers. As a matter of fact, his appeal when he ascended into heaven was this, he says, go and make disciples in acts chapter one, eight, he goes, you in the plural, all will be my witnesses and then go out. So there was 12 commissioned. You go into the second chapter of acts, the very beginning there or the end of the first chapter. And what do they do? They replace Judas as the next apostle, and then they all go out and have a tremendous impact. So even very early on, Christianity overcame the penchant of the human heart to centralize, okay? And the church attempted, you know, as I said earlier, to make Peter the leader, but guess what? Paul then becomes the leader. There's a shift in it just right off the bat. So you look at the first 300 years of the church, There's really no point leader all throughout the Roman empire. They're all over the place. Like for instance, during that period, we have the early church fathers, they called them and they were different ones. And that's, what's really interesting is this always in, 
opposition to the notion of centralization. Uh, there was the school of Alexandria in Northern Egypt throughout Northern Africa and the Middle East and Europe. And then you go up into the North and there was the schools of thought up there. As a matter of fact, the council of Nicaea Mm -hmm. in 324 was those two schools arguing with each other. Okay. This shows you there wasn't a centralized authority at that time. Okay. The Pope didn't have all that power at the time. We could fast forward to Charlemagne who tried to reestablish the entire Holy Roman empire, you know, and what he did. And yet it balkanized or it separated again. My point is this, is that Christianity at its core, when left to follow the biblical revelation tends to decentralized power and authority instead of welding it together in a what central bureaucratic thing called the church. And this is what the Protestant reformation was all about is that Martin Luther was having a crisis of faith. He was sent uh, to a small town in Germany, to a monastery. And he spent two years, you know what he did for two years? He read the new Testament. He read it over and over and over again. And the more he read it, particularly the book of Romans, the more he realized that this gigantic bureaucratic monstrosity of power and authority called the Roman Catholic church at that time was nothing like what he was reading. The church was in the new Testament. And so he went and he nailed 95 reasons why what we have today is nothing like the new Testament church on the Wittenberg church. So that was known as the Wittenberg door that launched the Protestant church. Reformation. Now, why is this? Well, it's because Jesus and Jesus Christ alone is a central authority figure in Christianity. And all human beings constantly try through their organizational desire and control to circumvent this, Mm. you see? So the problem then becomes the human heart to put our faith in people instead of Christ. And this is the problem with elite professionals. This is the idea floating around that society believes that elites are always smarter than the common man. Now, G.K. Chesterton, he argued against this uh, in orthodoxy. He says, the beauty about Christian faith is not only that it's true, but the common man understands it better than the elite. There's a basic societal agreement between those with power and those without. This is why we have an elite or professional class. There's a certain comfort for the common man to believe that there is someone who knows more than him, someone who can figure it out so that he can focus on the everyday aspects of his life. Uh, To quote Harry Stamper in the movie Armageddon, you know, when they bring him in, he goes, you're NASA for crying out loud. You are the smartest people in the world. You're supposed to figure this stuff out. And they didn't figure it out. Right. And who did they need? They needed an oil driller named Harry Stamper to save the world. What I like about that is I know it's contrived and I know it's silly and stupid, but it's also so true. It's so true because when we centralize stuff, guess what happens? I think we saw this in the COVID lockdowns and everything is all the power got centralized really quickly. And what's the first thing that happened to the power, regardless of your position on COVID, or you think it was good or bad to lock things down is that every decision was influenced by politics, not pure science. Mm -hmm. That is a fact. It's been documented. Everybody knows this, whether you agree with them or not. And, And that's sad is, is that when we centralize it brings us comfort, right? It helps us have faith, but in reality, do the elites ever deliver? 
This is what I would consider a flawed system, and it's proven to be flawed throughout 8,000 years of recorded human history. It works for a very short time, but is unscalable and unsustainable. The primary reason is because the capacity of a person to hold all human knowledge is insufficient. There's not a computer or a single mind or a super group of minds that isn't intelligent enough to understand the complexities of the weather, you know, and predict the weather right now, let alone the economic, political, and healthcare needs of hundreds of millions of people in America. It's impossible. In opposition to this is the notion that the collective knowledge of the common populace always outweighs the knowledge capacity of the elites. And it's based on basic math. I want to say that principle again. There is a notion that the collective knowledge of the common populace always outweighs the knowledge capacity of the elites. It's a basic math thing. And this is what our forefathers believed and talked about over and over again in the Federalist Papers. You take one common person, let's say you compare them to elite educated PhD of economics, and what you're going to find is a significant difference. The common person may have one quarter the IQ and intelligence or knowledge base of the elite. However, there are over 250 common people in America, and there's an estimated less than 10,000 PhDs in economics. And in those uh, PhDs in economics, they are highly specialized, you know, in a very specific discipline within the overall concept of economics. You've got microeconomics versus macroeconomics. You've got supply side versus consumer, spending habits, monetary policy. Uh, the Vienna School of Thought bases Keynesian uh, economics. You have all these different economic theories. And a PhD in economics will specialize in just one. So it doesn't make them highly intelligent in any other area discipline or any other area of life. It only makes them highly intelligent in one. And the reason our society as a whole has chosen to put its faith in one small cadre of leaders is because we have given up our faith in God. And when we give up our faith in God, we give up our faith in the common man. That is really astounding to me. And that's where we're at now is that we're, we, we've developed a professional class of politicians or celebrities or whatever, and they dictate to us what to think, what to believe, and what to feel. So faith in God is not, a, is not simple. God's going to get not, he's not just going to say, oh, here's the answer to every one of your problems. It doesn't work that way. It is our faith in the natural order by which he has set things up. God set it up. We can discover that's the basis of science. In other words, if you just let 300 million people work it out, their answer is always better than 3,000 elites. 300 million people are going to come up with a better economic, a better educational plan, even a better healthcare plan than 300 elites. It was a free market system, not only economically, but of ideas. That's the founding principle of America. So the collective citizenry will always come up with a better answer if it's allowed time to process it, to process the different options compared to a number of elites who are educated at Harvard and are trying to tell you what to think and what to believe and how to act. That is a lot to digest, (laughs) Pastor. Yes, it is. Um, it seems like the counter argument is that you have to have some agreement that holds everything together or acts as a foundation on which to build a decentralized form of solutions. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So what happens when there isn't a foundation? Um, no agreed upon context by which the common man can come up with a solution. Well, then you have anarchy or chaos, right? And that's really, really bad. If there's no central truth and people that's are right. all just doing whatever they want. It just turns into anarchy. Right? Yeah. And that's a really great question. And I think I would contend that by relying more and more on elites to make decisions for us, the farther we get from a common bond or agreement by which we can conduct ourselves. I would say that relying on elites or a professional class actually ends up doing what it, it, increases this balkanization, this anarchy. If you go back and you look at the feudal system in Western Europe and that, you know, I don't want to go into it, but basically you would have a king and then you'd have lords, right? Right. And what, what it was constantly at war. And the reason why is because that, how could that king represent us up here? You look at England and Scotland and Ireland, right. just those three little groups of people have been at war with each other for centuries, so many times, so many times. always trying to impose their will on another. There was a hundred years war, a hundred years war in Europe based over one simple fact. And you know what that fact was, is that was, should France be, was France, could it be laid claim by an English king or vice versa? Mm. That's it. Hundred years of war over over that. Yeah. So what I would say is when we start to rely on elites and when we start to rely on a professional class or kings or monarchs or whatever, we actually increase this chaos in this balkanization and division. Almost like we're eroding the foundation. Exactly. Now that doesn't mean we have zero binding thing. And this is the beauty of how America was founded. And that is Christianity teaches something very, and I I don't want to conflate those two, but what our founding fathers took a principle from scripture. And you know what Christianity teaches? The priesthood of all believers. You see, in other words, if you have the Bible, the revelation of Jesus, and you have the Holy spirit within you, then guess what? We're all priests. And so we don't need a priest or another intercessor. Jesus is the only intercessor we need. So our founding fathers took this biblical principle and brought it over and said, what if we have not a Bible about how we uh, know God, we have a document that protects the rights of the common man and limits the government. We're going to call it the constitution. So we have an objective foundation called the constitution. And what does that do? That allows the common man to thrive and flourish. And then in Christianity, the higher principle comes from Christianity, which is in Christianity, we know God through Jesus Christ. So we have the revelation of the scriptures and which is inspired word of God. And we have the Holy spirit within us when we are redeemed and made new in Christ. Those two truths are powerful, but if we eject them, if we don't have anything to do with them, then guess what? We lose that and it becomes chaos. And this is the problem with elites. Like they are steeped in postmodern deconstructionism. I want to show this video. This is a Harvard trained lawyer. So he claims I couldn't confirm it, but listen to what he says about the constitution. Okay. And listen to the fact that he's a postmodern deconstructionist. I'll talk about what he says after we come back from the video. Let's watch it. Repeat after me. There is no such thing as an objective view of the Constitution. There is only what the Supreme Court says the Constitution is. And what that boils down to is the Supreme Court making policy and then creating legal reasoning to back it up. And I say that as a Harvard lawyer. Now, notice what he said. His whole premise, which is unspoken, is that there's actually no objective truth at all. 
He says, there's no objective truth. He says, it's just a group of people that interpret it and then impose their interpretation on other people. That can only be true if you're a postmodern deconstructionist. What that, that Harvard trained lawyer is saying, you know, is that words have no intrinsic meaning. Mm. See, there's no intrinsic meaning. There's no objective meaning in those words. It's just whatever we want them to mean. This ideology that is coming out of Harvard law is coming is, is now rampant in our legal system today is why our society is becoming so divided. You see, and why America won't last as a unified country. If we continue on this path, you see the bigger principle is a Christian principle. And that is, there is a revealed truth an objective truth that allows for the free exchange of ideas, the free exploration of what it means to know God, to grow closer to him, to have a higher moral ethic. It's because of the Holy Spirit binding us together. We have to overcome the human penchant to be malevolent towards one another, right? We have to take off the deeds of the flesh, as he calls them, and put and experience the fruit of the Spirit. In the same way, the Constitution exists so that we can have a free market of economics, a free market of ideas, so that the best things bubble up and the best uh, concepts and principles. And what happens when we do that is everybody benefits the most. No one elite has the best idea. No one elite has all the power. It's out there across the board. And it's out of that bubbling up that comes the best ideas, the best wisdom, the best knowledge. So I believe that once we have a constitution politically, it's very similar to the scriptures for our faith is that you can't depart from those things. And we have to let people have freedom, just like you let people have freedom in Christ. Once they come to know him, we have to let the common man in the free market, come up with the best ideas for tomorrow. So I think what you've really explained is this is why it's so important for people to connect directly to Jesus, not yes. through some priest or Pope or celebrity preacher, whoever it might be in their life. Correct. It's important that they have a direct connection to Jesus. Yes. So how do we encourage this approach without a centralized figure saying you should do this. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. um, how do we avoid the natural tendency of humans wanting to centralize their power and authority and just show up on a Sunday and say, well, I'll just believe whatever the preacher says that week. And that's what I'm just going to do. And that's the extent. Uh, well, that's a big problem. And let's, let's look at what's happening. Is Christianity on the increase or decline in American society today? Decline. It's on decline. That's right. You look at uh, Christianity in uh, Europe, Western Europe. Is it on increase or on decline? I would assume decline based on the premise of this conversation. It's almost dead. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's almost dead there. They, they pretty much abandoned it completely. So you look at, at Western civilization in Europe, you look at America, you look at Canada. Is the church growing in Canada or shrinking? It's shrinking. You look um, uh, down in Mexico, Central America, and in South America, is the traditional church growing or shrinking? It's shrinking you know, in all of these areas. So then let's go to the places where Christianity is illegal, like in China and in Indonesia, even Iran today, sub-Sahara Africa, and a lot of those places. Guess what? Christianity is growing like wildfire. Mm. And what's really interesting about that is because, is that uh, this is pretty salty. And that is, is that we as Christians, we love big. We love 
grand, you know. We love we have you know, cathedrals and yeah, oh, we have, and we love celebrity Christianity. You know, we want to go to a we man. The more I remember somebody saying to me one time, the most amazing experiences of my life is I went to uh, where the University of Alabama plays football. You know, it can seat like eighty thousand people. Mm-hmm. I went to this thing and they had this conference, you know, for young adults, and it was filled with people, and we were singing and rocking the house and blah 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 blah. And I said, okay. I hate to be a, a Debbie Downer, but out of that incredible experience, did we see any transformation anywhere because of that? Nope. Not only did we not see any growth in Christianity, guess what? We didn't see any reformation or renewal in the moral fiber of people in the South. Mm. It's just gotten worse. See, see, we love that. We love big. We are enamored by big. And we can't, we can't remember the experiences of the Old Testament, where a nation of four million people marching across the desert saw miracles every day, food growing out on the ground, you know, pillar of fire, uh, you know, at night lighting up the camp, you know, a pillar of clouds during the day, the parting of the Red Sea. They loved big, 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 and their faith couldn't even last two years. Mm. And so the thing is that from early on, Jesus Christ decentralized the faith and he said, go and make disciples. He didn't say make converts. He didn't say make great worship experiences. Are those things negatively bad? No. But if that's what you live for, then you don't have a solid faith. You have to know what you believe and why you believe it. And Christianity has always grown from one person to one person at a time in discipleship. Because he says, make disciples by teaching them to do what? obey all that I have commanded. And what are the commands of Christ? You know, you go in there and you look at them. They're all about love one another, love your neighbor as yourself, uh, love God first, love this, love justice, love mercy, love righteousness. Boy, that's a tough list of things to love, right? But that's what it means to be obedient to Christ. And so I think that the power of discipleship is the power of the gospel, and that's what we should be living for as a church. And until Christianity, the church in America, returns to discipleship, we're not going to see any growth in America anymore. It's going to continue to be a post-Christian society. It's going to get further and further away from the truth. And so that's what the Salty Pastor is all about, you see. Whether you realize it or not, the Salty Pastor is an attempt to help you grow in your own discipleship. Know what you believe, why you believe it, so that your faith is built on a solid rock foundation that can't be shaken. It can't be, you can't be led astray by some elite who stands up there and and makes an argument. You know what it is. And you say, oh, I can see right through that. No problem. I have critical thinking skills. I have, I think for myself, I make my own decisions. And in the end, when I know I'm walking in faith, I'm growing closer to God. And when he speaks to me, I know his voice. I've discerned good from evil. I know the word of God. Then I'm going to make really great decisions. It's going to make a huge impact on my own life and on my life of the people that I love, on my church, the people around me. And it's until we get back to discipleship, we're not going to see an explosion or a revival in America. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us today, Pastor. I really think we learned a lot from this discussion on, um, I mean, I, I was skeptical on the hitch thing, but <laughs> on the hitch I think thing. we got, I think we got into some pretty deep conversations about it. So I appreciate you sharing with us and I pray that you guys join us on Sunday to talk more about this. Um, Uh, here at Foothills. So thank you guys so much for joining us and we'll see you on Sunday here at Foothills Christian Church. Blessings.